Have you ever seen a, a very large military plane flying? Uh, I, I've seen carrier planes plenty of times carrying things that are as big as tanks <clears throat> flying over my parents' house when I was uh, small. They lived sort of in, in the Chico airstrip, and for a while I had lots of military things going through. Sometimes it doesn't as much anymore, but I always marvel at how graceful such a big uh, giant plane can be in the air <clears throat> and, and what, a, what a landing it can have. And I bring this up as a mental picture for you so that you might understand the goal of the sermon today. The goal of this sermon particularly is to give you this big picture of Ephesians and to take a massive topic concerning the unity of the faith as it's described here, the unity that we have in Christ and and gracefully... Uh, fly over the first three chapters of Ephesians, since this is not where we're at in, in our series in Acts, and grace, gracefully land it in Ephesians chapter 4 and spend some time there. <clears throat> and I'll say more about that in just one second. But I, I want to give you the points for today. There are five of them. And the first is theological theological treatise of unity this is chapter 2 11 through uh, 3 11 unity of the spirit pursued chapter 4 1 through 6 diversity of the gifts chapter 4 7 through 11 the function of the gifts 4 12 the goal of all ministry chapter 4 Verse 12 through 16. As we begin today, let me just explain why we find ourselves here in Ephesians rather than the book of Acts, which we've been going through. <clears throat> in our regular study, we have most recently seen that the Lord Jesus from heaven, bodily resurrected and ascended to heaven, has poured out the Holy Spirit on the Jews at Pentecost, uh, Jewish believers. And then on the Gentiles in a similar manner, and this narrative has been shown twice. And so we have seen the, uh, from the perspective of what has happened historically, um, what the unity of the church consists in. But I think it would be helpful to go to another long extended section of scripture on the same topic, but from a totally different perspective and a totally different way of communicating what has happened. You see, this event that has taken place in Acts, as we have seen it, is the granting of the Gentiles repentance and faith. They have the same salvation from the same Christ and therefore a part of the same church. Luke unfolds it in a narrative. However, Paul is going to show how uh, the church has blossomed, as it were, through a theological presentation. He's going to be conceptual. We, we might even say he's going to be systematic. He's going to give you a uh, sy- systematic confession of faith 
not just tell the story. And because we'll have these two set side by side, as it were, it'll be helpful for our comprehension of, of what unity is and means and its purpose. So just to catch you up, since we haven't been in Ephesians, here's the context from chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, 10. I summarize just by saying Paul describes salvation as it pertains to all of humanity. He covers things like union with Christ in eternity past and how God has chosen a people and and united them to Jesus and sovereignly brought about their um, salvation in the present. He talks about our being made alive from the dead by grace alone. He talks about our present experience of participation of this in the spirit. And he talks about um, the end all of all things, which is we have been saved for eternal ages of experiencing, quote, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why we've been saved. So all of these things are covered in 1.3 to 2.10 in Ephesians. And then from that section, we'll say a few things and be a little bit more detailed. I just want to say enough to have you catch the main flow of the argument up until chapter 4 because it's really unbroken from 2.11 on <clears throat> through most of the rest of the book. So in chapter 2.11 through 3.11... Paul narrows in on the relationship between Jew and everybody else, non-Jew, normally called Gentiles, Jew and Gentile. And here the apostle gives a theological treatise, that is a systematic explanation of what God has done in Christ that has brought these two together. Um, I got forward in my notes here. Uh, in, in chapter 2.12 is where I want you to look. What we see here in 2.12 is that at one time, he acknowledges that the Gentiles were separated. Notice the first thing he says in 2.12. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. That is so key. If, if you understand this, you understand why the rest of the separation exists. He says, not only what follows from being separated from Christ is they're separated also from the commonwealth of Israel. That is being a citizen of the Israeli state, the covenants of promise. You can think of the many that exist in the Old Testament. Because they're separated from Christ, they're also separated from these other things, meaning they're also estranged from God and without hope in the world. But what has happened in Christ Jesus, verse 13, this radical change that has taken place is now The Gentiles are in Christ. 
You see, that's the fundamental change that exists. They are separated from Christ and now they have been made to be in Christ. And therefore they are part of one new man, Christ Jesus himself. Therefore the old wall that separated Israel from Gentile has been broken down in the body of Christ. The, the nations, as it were, as a picture Paul uses, have a, a ceremonial law, this is mainly where it is, have a ceremonial law that has been, uh, that distinguished the two different peoples. In Christ, that has been knocked down, and they share the same nation, as it were. So it says, specifically, that they're no longer, the Gentiles are no longer foreigners, outsiders. The separation is gone. In fact, in place of that, now the Gentiles have a new status. This is verse 19. The new status. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is, there is one nation of God's people, as it were. There's no longer any distinction. Rather, there's one people of God that make up the one church of God from all the ethnicities on the face of the planet. Then after this systematic treatise of what has happened in Christ and how being made in Christ, now there's a unity in chapter 3, 10 and 11, you have a, uh, a pretty bow, as it were, tied to it. At 10 and 11, <clears throat> read this way. Uh, I'll read 9 too. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church of Jew and Gentile, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith. So by announcing that God has fulfilled his eternal purposes, this is now the sort of crowning glory of the world. That is the church made up of all the nations of the world. This is what displays the triumph of Jesus Christ in victory. That is, this is the vehicle and you could say the, the pilot that, that flies the plane of redemption. It is Christ Jesus through the church saves the world. <clears throat> so uh, this, is, this is glorious and I could comment much more. I'll just say that the final thing for context is in verse 14 through 21, you have a, a prayer really that the church would come to the full realization of these things uh, so that Christ is formed in us as the Spirit abides in us. I won't comment on it any more than that. <clears throat> because now we get to what I really want to get to. That is the unpacking of unity. The unpacking of unity. 
Unity of the Spirit pursued is this point. Up to this point, Paul has given us a super solid foundation for the real unity that ought to exist. And I do say ought to exist in the church. In chapter 4, he's going to begin building on this foundation um, and adding to it as he goes. But he's going to build on this foundation to the Ephesian church about how they can pursue the, the maintenance of unity and the growth of their unity in Christ Jesus. There is one bond in Christ. And in some ways, I think of it like a, a garden hedge shrub. Hedge shrubs, by their very nature, want to get all cattywampus and uneven and wonky. And that is our natural tendency. Unity can get messed up really easily if you're going for a nice trim hedge, as you know I'm talking about, a manicured hedge. And so it needs shears. It needs maintenance to stay in the form that it is. In a similar way, the unity of the church gets untidy, and there are particular ways that are listed here in chapter 4, 1 through 3, that help us pursue maintenance and pursue the growth of a, of a, a united church. So in verse 1 through 3, I'll read it here again. It says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now here's the practices with all the humility, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There are five actions listed here. I take the in love as the fifth action, which sort of qualifies the other four. So I sort of have two groups, as it were. You can't have a group of one, so it's not a group. You have one and four. And the first four actually fit together harmoniously. In fact, it's not totally something different. They're four of uh, four practices that really are mutually interpretive. They, they teach us really one thing <clears throat> that binds us together. And, and the one thing that binds the four things that he says, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. The, the reason he has to say this at all is because there is the possibility, and nay, the inevitabli- inevitability of sin getting in the way of our unity. <clears throat> I know you thought you were perfect and the problem was everybody else. Sorry to inform you of the bad news. The apostle Paul tells us that we all are to be on the lookout and to be practicing these things so that sin would not crop up and unnaturally disunify us, unnaturally split us, cause us to go elsewhere. So if you look at these practices, 
I'm not going to explain them. They do need time to unpack at a different time. I'm not going to do that here. But, but what's implied in the positive practices, what, what sins do each one of these practices combat? Well, the intrusion in the church, which is incessant and consistent, <clears throat> if the first thing that he lists, humility... Well, the thing that we're going to have to deal with is pride or arrogance. That, that's what is first um, at the forefront of division in the church. Like, likewise, um, I'm just going to say the others, harshness rather than gentleness, impatience rather than patience, and concerning bearing with one another, I, I think maybe it's helpful to use another term, forbearing, <clears throat> the way of overlooking sin. God in times past, Romans 3 says, overlooked or for, forbore, forbear. I don't know how to put that in past tense, sorry. <laughs> he, he forbear with us um, concerning our sin. He overlooked it. And there is in us the unwillingness by our natural state to overlook other sins. We make it much larger of a deal than it actually is. And for those causes, we divide. And so they must be rooted out by the four virtues that are listed. Humility, patience, bearing with one another, and gentleness. Lastly, he says, in love, and I take that to qualify it all. So if you think of love as like salt, you sprinkle love, biblical love, defined by the commandments of God on everything. You season your life and all that you do with love. This will keep us together, keep the flavors harmonious, as it were. <clears throat> Now, there are also, although he spent tons of time really expounding on what the unity of the church is, what it consists in, he can't help himself. He has to go back and and say again, okay, I have more to say about this unity. I'm going to put it clearly for you. And he says, one, one, one. He says all these, this list, which we could go through in order, but I find that there's sort of four separate categories that we might filter these ones in just so it's fresh in your mind look in verse four there is one body one spirit one hope one call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all okay all all those ones Now, the different categories we run across, the first one, there is one body, is one category that he gives. He doesn't really place any others in there. He reminds the church about our union in the body, the, the literal body of Christ. Because we are, in a sort of mystical way, united to Christ, there is also a oneness about us. We call it the church, but it's, it's one corporate body made up of many members. There's a singular uh, entity, as it were, that binds us together. We, we can't escape it. It exists across the whole world, and we are part of it. 
Okay, so that's, that's one category, the church. This binds us together. Secondly, truth. Uh, and I want to define that truth according to the scripture, but really the category is truth. You'll notice that in 4 and 5, he says that there is one hope, one call, that belongs to our hope, and one faith. Now, normally, we think of these, when we say hope and faith, we think of something that happens inside of us. Well, if he was talking about that, he couldn't say there's one of them. (laughs) He'd say there's many, many, many. Uh, But the point is to say that regarding faith and hope and call is that these things first exist outside of us. Okay, so for example... When he says one faith, Paul is talking about the reality of a singular body of truth which makes up the Christian message. That is the faith. Jude says we have one faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's, it's, a, it's, it's one book. It's really helpful. Early Christians wouldn't have had it like us. But we can say the faith is contained in in this, not anything else, this one book. And in that sense, the faith is simply the truth of the scriptures. And this um, we have been brought into. We participate in the one faith that's revealed here. The way we participate is by believing. And this faith, This truth of God also has a part of it which is future to us. We call that hope. It's as sure as all the rest of it. We just haven't participated in it, only in eager expectation. And so we hope in an objective hope. Okay, and we have we all have one call. Meaning, not that you weren't individually called at one point. That is true. You have been called unto Christ effectually by the Spirit. However, this call is the same for each and every person. It it is the working of the Spirit that brings us to Christ through the gospel. And he did it the same for every single person, fundamentally. Though all of our experiences of it are different. So... Faith, hope, call. The reason that they're one is defined and detailed in the scriptures, but essentially it's those things which exist by God's creation, his creative power, which at some point in time he has caused you to share in, to fellowship in, to participate in personally. Now, the next thing that he brings up, the other one, is... The ordinances, or really he says one ordinance of the church. Verse 5, there's one baptism. Now, he could have easily said, and I'm not sure why he doesn't, other than it might fit his purposes better for illustration, but essentially the ordinances, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, are those institutions of the church, which we partake of the same actions as we share in the same grace, as we participate in the same Christ. Paul in Galatians 3.27 can say, 
for as many as of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Charles Hodge, I read, read this week, and he had a great commentary. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. He, he comments on baptism. And <clears throat> just so you're clear on what, this, what I'm intending for you to get from this quote, is I want you to understand um, how, how baptism is a symbol of <clears throat> faith that is true. It's, it's the formal aspect, and, and, and therefore you can understand that baptism is one, not just yours that you individually partake of, but it's part of this institution of the church. Listen to how he says this. Quote, the act of faith implied and expressed in baptism is receiving Christ as our sanctification as well as our righteousness. He further clarifies, baptism, therefore, as an act of faith, or in other words, as a formal reception of Christ as our Savior, brings us into intimate union with him. From this vantage point, we can see that, that baptism is one because it's a singular formal institution of the church, which we all in our various times and places participate in. You can think of it, baptism, appropriately, as every believer gains access into the church through the same door of baptism. Okay. The last category that is one for us or creates unity in us as we participate in these things is the triune God. He, he does it, you know, normally say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He does it backwards because it's our participation in God, Spirit, Son, Father in 4, 5, and 6. The last thing that binds us together is the triune God himself. 1 John 1, 3 says it plainly, our fellowship, which you know that word, right? Koinonia, it means participation. It, it, it means sharing. All, those are all synonyms that give us different images of the same thing. Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. But we can ask, since Jesus is in heaven and the Father is a spirit as well. How is it that we participate? How do we have fellowship with the Father and the Son? I think one text brings it all together really nicely, and I'll just quote it for you here. Romans 8, 9, and 10. Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, that is in your sinful nature, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, listen to this. But if Christ is in you, and then he finishes his statement here, we see that interchangeably, Paul can use Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ. Now, when we hear Spirit of God, we just think of the Holy Spirit. When we hear Spirit of Christ, sometimes it's different. But you should know 
here, what is being said is Spirit of God, namely the Father. You, you recognize that in the New Testament, by and large, when God is referred to, it's not referring to the triune God as a whole. It's referring to the person of the Father most often. Okay? And that'll become, that should be apparent by your reading of the scriptures. And so here, he's saying the Spirit of the Father. And then he turns around and says the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. <clears throat> that is, the Father and the Son shared the same Spirit. And the Spirit, obviously, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You could say that the Father dwells in you. You could say that the Son dwells in you. Here, he turns around and just omits Spirit altogether and says, if Christ is in you. So <clears throat> the way um, this beautifully unfolds in the teaching of the New Testament especially here, is something we should really understand is what makes us united is our participation in God by the Spirit. In other words, we could say the role and, and function of the Holy Spirit, His ministry is to bring all of God to you. So that you can say that Christ, the Father, the Son dwell in me. Or he mediates me to God. Uh, we are in Christ. Well, how? It's because we have the Spirit dwelling in us. He, he makes the connection between the two. Okay? From, the, from God, all of God in us or us in all of God. Now, having made those connections, then he transitions again. And I think there's a, a philosophical problem probably that underlies this, the problem of the one and the many. And it's bridged by the Trinity. We won't talk about that today. So it's normal when talking about the Trinity to go and us, our, our life in the Trinity, is to go back between the oneness of God and the threeness of God and sort of alternate. And here, he talks about our oneness in God and then immediately qualifies that because we are one in God, we also have separate individual gifts from God. It's really an amazing transition. You'll know in chapter 4, 7 through 11, which we read as we started, that now he's going to talk about a diversity of gifts. When Christ ascended, he gave gifts to men. And then he names in verse 11, a few of them, some historical gifts. He gave the apostles and prophets of which have ceased to exist. Okay. Then he gives some ongoing, not just historical gifts, but present ongoing gifts to the church, that is evangelists, shepherds, teachers. There's two, there's a bifurcation of the two offices of a pastor. There's ruling elders and there's teaching elders. And that's the distinction here. They're, they're one office and two functions. Teachers, pastors, but they're all pastors. Same thing, all elders. So these are the gifts. The gifts are not, as you can think of, like, um, the, the gifts, 
what are their purpose? Well, they're, they're in order in this context to bring men into the particular offices of the church. So the, the reason that they exist, the first reason is that men would take particular responsibilities in the church. So <clears throat> what we can say is that we have a union in Christ Jesus through the Spirit. And that union saves us, right? We, we are saved by uh, the gospel and we participate in the life of God. But that is, does not qualify anybody to take the office of an elder. There is a further gift for all of these things. I'm just going to focus on the one that you experience. <clears throat> there is a further gifting, a further qualifying, uh, uh, an, act, um, an activity of the spirit that sanctifies a man's mind, his discipline uh, of his will, the, the purification and directing of the desires of the man's heart beyond the union that he has which saves. We call that justification. A person has their sins forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus counted to them, is received in their person by the Father through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the gospel. But but there is a further gifting that's required to enable a man to take an office. So if a man <clears throat> was saved and he's like, I feel I'm supposed to be a pastor, you go, congratulations, you need sanctification. <laughs> You're not qualified yet. Uh, you, you have to go through a process of, of stewarding the gift of God. That is the case for pastors, but it is also the case for all of us. And I want to show you that. The next two points really flow from verse 12. I could focus on there, but I'm going to read the rest. And this is where we'll move into all of next, uh, next week because there's tension that comes related to these giftings. Unity and separate giftings. It becomes hard to navigate when we get into the details. <clears throat> but the grand scheme of things needs to be in your mind. Okay, so in verse 12, listen to these words. It says, these offices, shepherds and teachers, evangelists, are given as gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then 13 is going to say, the goal of ministry. So what are the functions of the gifts? That is the pastoral office. What is it designed by God to accomplish? This is amazing here. Right there in verse 12. The formal offices of the church exist to equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry. Ministry, as you know, is just a word for service. So it's the pastor's role to provide 
the necessary biblical training from the word of God, which furnishes you, each and every individual member, with what is needed for you to accomplish your ministry. Your ministry. Your ministry. This is huge. Ministry, as a simple word for service, just a a word that we use, we uh, churchify the word. (laughs) We make it ecclesiastical. Um, Is not uh, relegated to in the church sphere. That's the focus in chapter four. It's, it's for the members of the church. <clears throat> but the service that you have, you should think of similarly to the pastor. The pastor is gifted to do what he does. You are gifted through the means of the ministry of men to do what you've been called to do. You have an office. Are you faithful in it? Do you even know what it is? Do you know what you are supposed to be doing with your Christian life? Certainly, you know some of the things that God has called you to. You may be a father or a mother, husband or wife. You may be an employee or an employer and such and so forth. These are the offices you've been given. And the preaching of the word is to equip you for those. If you're not getting better in those you're not fully understanding your ministry in those. You're not understanding the word. Okay? There is a rubber meeting the road. You need to go from the concept to the practical application. That's what we're going to do next week. But listen, don't be fuzzy about this. There is a service for you in Christ that is not detailed here because it's assumed in light of the goal. And the goal is clear In verse 12 through 16, read it again. Pastors equip the saints for the saints' service of ministry, the saints' service. And that service is aimed at, firstly, the building up of the body of Christ. Now, we'll just cover one phrase. Until we attain to the fullness of Christ, (laughs) mature manhood. So as you can tell, this will finally reach one day in its full maturity, a perfection of the church in its various ways. That's the goal. But how do we think of that on a local church basis? You, You obviously can see phases here. Phase one, pastors train from the word. Faithfully preaching, faithfully doing Sunday school, faithfully doing um, meeting with you and counseling and so forth. That's the first phase. Phase two is you, you should be doing this throughout, but if you don't know, today's your start date. The second phase is you go to work. What do you do for the kingdom of God The final thing that happens or really the product of a healthy church doing what it's supposed to do is the church is built up. Both, you know, God's grace grants this. Uh, I don't choose the number of the elect. God does. He chooses whom he will save. But 
but uh, so, so numbers aren't guaranteed, <clears throat> though uh, one of our works is calling the lost to know Christ, and thereby the church is built up in that way. But the primary focus of this building up is not, or as we see here, uh, the primary building up of the church is the maturity of the church. If someone were to run up to you and to say, what is a mature church? You know what they might think of first and foremost? A snazzy band. That's a mature church. Really good programs. Is this what the apostle has in mind? Absolutely not. Not even close. What he has in mind is the maturity of the church, which consists in the godliness of its members. The Christ-likeness of its members and their service to him. A mature church is one that is filled with members who have a burden to do what they can for their brothers and sisters Christ-likeness. Which means if you have simply pastors working the ministry, you will never have a mature church. And you yourself aren't mature. So, what must we do? How does this look? Well, we're going to get into a lot of it next week, but let me give you a taste. Because this is where disunity comes in and so forth. But, But listen to it this way. In the church... Or let's say you're at a church event because where two or more are gathered, you have the church, right? Maybe not all its members, but you have the church present there, at least in, in a portion of it. If someone is gossiping who's a member of the congregation and you're present, let me ask you, who is responsible to bring reproof and correction? Christ has signed you up for the service. You are. You have a service for their godliness and the upbuilding and unity of the church, not merely a pastoral duty, though we'd love to help. When someone speaks about you or speaks to you about the problems that they have in their life, discipleship problems, life problems, you must do your best to give biblical counsel rooted in the scriptures This is how the church is built up. Wherein it's too difficult, you say, hey, we need to go talk to the pastors and figure out how to do this together and be working together to build each other up. You learn how to handle that problem. Your friend learns how to handle that problem in the church. And everybody is edified. Your job is to provide hospitality to one another. It's not a suggestion. It's an obligation. You just have to figure out when and how and frequency and all that good stuff. If you're going to ask them to bring stuff, if you're going to bring stuff, whatever, that's fine. But Christ has called us all to hospitality. That is stimulating the command for fellowship. It is providing, it is building up the close, tight-knit relational connections we have in Christ. That's your job, not mine. Merely, Christ has enlisted you in comforting the afflicted, feeding the hungry, aiding the weak, and being patient among everyone. 
How do you do that? Unless you've done some of the other things. So often, you'll know that church experience, for many, I'm very thankful that this place has grown quite a bit since I first got here, but many uh, come, start a service, and then they leave right after. And then they don't ask anybody over. And they don't know everybody's names. And they don't pray through the member role. And they don't, it's just, it's a, it's a personal relationship with Jesus alone. That's sin. <laughs> if that's your Christian experience and that's your Christian life, you need to confess your sin and repent. Your job is to build up the body and you can't do that without getting in the muck of people's sin <laughs> and life. You just get in my life for a few minutes and you'll, you'll get me irritated <laughs> because I'm a sinner and I'll have to repent for that. And then we'll build each other up and you'll make me more godly and I you. Your job is to give the gospel to the lost. And although you can do this individually, you know, have you ever thought about other ways you can do that? Have an evangelistic Bible study. Just go over a couple key verses I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Talk about the cross. Talk about and, and gather in some of the other church members and say, hey, let's bring our family members to this. Let's just do something creative like that. Uh, you could go uh, track the streets and go to farmer's market and just ask random people, do you know Christ Jesus? <laughs> Where are you going when you die? You know what God tells us we must be and do? Things like this. Let us be a people who on Sundays hear the word of God and work by the spirit to understand. That's what brings transformation to not only your Sunday, but your Monday through Saturday. This is the tool each week that comes to you. And there's, there's two options, really. You can go, okay, I got a tool, one, even one thing. You take away and you go, I know how to use this wrench this week. Or you could put it in the drawer and never use it. Forget about it. Our job is to be sanctified by the word so that we can go out and sanctify the world through conversion or through our help in discipling one another. That's the work of ministry. And so because this is a monumental task, it takes the power of the Spirit of God. It takes labor on our, on our behalf. We must ask for God's grace. And so let's pray together and ask for that as we close.